Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. Our guest is Michelle Vitali, artist and educator, and this week's Halloween horror recommendation is from Erica. It's the film The Skull, available on Hulu and Amazon Prime. I'm Mike Berlin, director of photography at Music Choice. I'm John Lyons, filmmaker, teaching artist, and director of programming for the Film Society. And I'm Erica Berlin, executive director of the Film Society of Northwestern PA. And we have with us Michelle Vitali. Michelle, thank you so much for being here on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Michelle, I have known you for many years, and I see you frequently at one of our favorite eateries, Lip, in Edinburgh. Yes. I know you're a fan. So how how did you come to Northwestern Pennsylvania? Are you from here? Did you move here? Where'd you start? Well, I started life in Philadelphia. The first 36 years or so of my life were in Philadelphia, born and raised there in South Philadelphia. And um, well, then from there, I went to uh, Baltimore and then to New York City. And uh, I'm a city, I'm an East Coast city girl through and through. And <laughs> big cities. Yeah, yeah, big ones. And I love that. I really love the um, dynamic of a really big city. And I just love that there is absolutely always plenty to do at any hour of the day or night. So that part I missed, but I but I also had a wonderful trade-off, which is that um, by the time my second kid was on, on the way, um, I was getting priced out of New York City. And so my husband actually waved a job ad in front of my face and said, this job has your name written all over it. And Edinburgh University was looking for a, a painter who had a subspecialty in human anatomy. And so that was me. That absolutely was me. I've had something like seven years of anatomical training for the arts. So I think he even did part of the uh, application for me because he was really excited about this job. Oh, wow. uh, so I applied, I got it, and here I am. But the second child was coming, and so boy, oh boy, it was. I don't know how we were going to afford it if we didn't leave New York City because you pretty much need to be making like a quarter of a million dollars to be middle class in New York, and that was in the nineties. <laughs> so, yeah, seriously. Well, all right. So that that had to have been a big change going from New York, New York City to Edinburgh, Pennsylvania. And it I mean, was. It had its pluses and its minuses, though. Sure. Um, what what were some of uh, the pluses and minuses, if you care to share? I don't mind. I don't mind. I Listen, I think this is a really um, friendly, wonderful place. They treated us very well at a couple of uh, difficult times in our lives. You know, um, we had a bad accident in the family and the whole community rallied. I wasn't really prepared for that. And I was thrilled to have that happen. Um, it's been a fantastic place to raise both our kids. I didn't feel like I had to keep my eyeballs on them at every second of every day, which you kind of do in a city. You have to kind of know where they are all the time. And I don't think that's a healthy way for kids to be raised, but I was, I was raised a little, you know, I guess times were different in the sixties when I was raised. Um, we were, um, we were allowed to be let loose for most of the day, but I don't think you can do that very safely anymore. So I was happy to have that opportunity for my children. Now, the flip side, of course, is I seriously miss the culture. I mean, I, I go to music, I go to, I, I go to all kinds of plays, I go to musicals, I go to opera, um, I just miss the major museums, all this stuff. And But the nice thing about living here is that the cost of living is such that I can just pick up and go, you know, so I'll go to Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Chicago, New York, you know, whatever, wherever I want. I'll go to Europe if I want to, you know, to go see a certain art show. 
And uh, because I can afford to, because the houses do not cost a half a million dollars here. Yeah, that's a good point. You can always travel, right? Right. Of course, there's a lot of people that, um, you know, say they'll always travel and don't. But if you actually, if you um, actually do it, yeah, it's an affordable place that you can save up and, and go on trips, right? Plenty of trips. Yeah, yeah. It, it's all about your priorities. I mean, I could have bought snowmobiles for the whole family, you know, or I could take <laughs> my family to Europe every now and then. So, you know, it's all about your priorities. And I really want my kids to be citizens of the world. And I miss all that stuff. So. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so as far as painting, um, how did you develop as an artist? Did you start off, you know, more figures, landscapes, and gradually find your way? How And how did you? How did you find your way? Well, I was always, you know, I never even thought of it as finding my way because I, I always felt like an artist and I had been sort of identified really early. You know, then I went to Catholic schools through 12 years and the nuns were just telling me I was the artist. And, oh, wow. <laughs> and so I didn't even grow up with any other identity. It was actually, I was in my thirties. So I realized I probably could have had a other choice if I wanted to. <laughs> but um, So I was always this artist and I just like to draw from my imagination. But then when I learned how to cite and learned how to draw properly from observation, that just to me set everything on a different path. Um, because anything that came out of my imagination, then I knew how to greatly improve. So I've never been, I'm really interested in the abstract elements of paintings and drawings and other artwork, but I don't like to make them. I appreciate them in others. You know, my own particular strength is visual observation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, anatomy is so difficult, right? That's one of the more difficult, I would assume, because of scale and perspective and, and things like that. I think the figure is difficult. Um, and so anatomy is one part of rendering the figure. Um, I don't, I have always loved it. I loved it so much. I've taken it over and over again at multiple levels of my education. So um, for me, it's an absolute labor of love and a privilege to be able to study what I think is the most, you know, magnificent, magnificent form um, in the natural world. So yes, to the broader idea of the figure being really, really um, tricky and difficult to render. It takes years and years to become very good at it. So, um, and, and a lot of people too want to get quicker at quicker, you know, a quicker, I'm sorry, better at things quicker. Sure. So, um, it, Just watch a YouTube a video and, and learn how to draw a figure, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> and and it's a, it's kind of a hard sell to say, this will take you five years to do reasonably well, <laughs> you know, but I don't care. It's, you know, uh, for me, uh, I tell the students that and if they know they have a hard row ahead of them and I'm just the beginning of it and they hopefully will take other classes on the figure again after me. Um, if the fire is lit in them, you know, and if it's not, that's okay too. We don't need everybody to be good at the same things, obviously. Sure, of course. How do you find, so talking about moving to a small town, I mean, I always assume seeing around campus, like the signs advertising, like nude models needed and stuff like that. Did Have you ever found, uh, you know, any difficulty or, or are there... Uh, are there a, a, a plethora of uh, individuals willing to step up to me? It's like the most scary thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we have no problems with that at all, really. Um, um, I used to be the model coordinator for a good 15 or so years. Um, it's, it's now another member of the art faculty, Terry McKelvey. 
Um, but I did it for years and years, and it's actually really pretty easy. Um, for one thing, because a lot of people, well, we sell it a certain way too, to be honest, because it is true, you know, that you will be literally the coolest grandma someday or grandpa someday to say, I used to be a nude model. So right. you can have you, you can have something to talk about when you're older that makes your grandchildren think you're super edgy. But <laughs> and you know, we sort of jokingly say, here's a great way to piss off your parents, you know. <laughs> a lot of kids apparently like to do that but it's it's really all about the the helping of art young artists mm -hmm. you know so if you're interested in helping artists and many of them are artists the only problem we have here is getting anything other than young perfect people because you know the wide range of 20 year olds that come to us <laughs> that was a joke because they're all 20 year olds you know mm -hmm. um when you live in a city we get old people we get pregnant people we get people missing a limb we get all kinds of people and all kinds of shape and it's a beautiful thing honestly you get to see humanity and um it's a humbling and wonderful experience and i'm indebted to them i feel indebted to our models a little bit like i guess medical schools would be indebted to their cadavers you know mm -hmm. and know that it's a sacrifice that they're making for the betterment of you know me or us Absolutely. Um, so i totally love them and i was always good at attracting them and, and it's also because i could do it from a point of um um you know, I have experience with, it. I did it for six years when I was in school, when I was young, you know, um, and I would tell them it's, it's nerve wracking for the first five minutes. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the time you're a model is the world's most boring job. You're literally going to be thinking of laundry lists and grocery <laughs> lists, and it's super boring. Um, so I, you know, I could speak to it as I could describe it as an insider and they were like, Oh, you did it. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm like a normal person sort of, <laughs> and it's not a big deal. It's not like you have to have, you know, pole dancing experience or anything like that. Right. Well, some people think that, and it's oh, okay. absolutely false. We love if an 80 year old man walked in the door, I would love to have him as a model. Mm -hmm. So this is not in any way about, you know, sexiness. Do you advertise? Uh, I'm just curious, like off campus or on social media and stuff too? Okay. Yeah, yeah I do. I do. I, I always did it on Facebook and um, I put some, um, you know, pictures and some, you know, just kind of uh, jokes that would, that were appropriate, but also would kind of release the tension and just have people think about it. And I did have uh, folks from town come to me, you know, um, uh, a couple of moms from the vicinity would say, you know, I, I've had body issues my whole life and this would really help me through them. And my only concern is that I don't want to be in classes with my kids' friends and I would help them. I don't, you know, that super cool because that's the other thing I promise everybody about modeling is that once you model, you will have a whole other level of, of being comfortable in your own skin. So uh, that's a selling point for people that have that as an issue. I never did, but other people certainly do. Um, I hear it all the time and it helps them overcome it really quickly. And we, we love and admire our models in every, you know, shape and they get to see the artwork and we, they generally photograph the artwork of themselves afterwards. And sometimes yeah, I was going to ask if they get, get to take some home or take a photo or at least a photo. And, um, most artists, you know, if it's right out of their sketchbook, there's lots of reasons we don't always give it away, but, um, but sometimes they do get one, an actual original drawing, but mostly we just let them take pictures and, if you're a model in my anatomy class, for example, you know, you're going to get 20, you could walk around the classroom 
in normal times and take 22 different pictures of yourself, 22 different renditions. And it's, you can see beautiful drawings. You can see, you know, awkward draw. You can see everything. And it just puts you at ease because we've just all stared at you for yeah. two and a half hours and we love you. So there's nothing, to, to me, there's nothing more empowering than that, but so what do we, it's a hard sell for some people. <laughs> of course, of course. I'm curious, you know, because we're filmmakers, a lot of our uh, listeners are filmmakers. Um, when you see painting and drawing uh, portrayed in film and on TV shows, um, <laughs> I know we were talking before we were recording, you said that, you know, a lot of times it's it's laughable. What do they usually get wrong? Like, what is the most glaring, um, I don't know, fallacy of, you know, representing <laughs> the the artist well there's there's film. two things that come right to mind and one is that that moment of inspiration you know uh, <laughs> sure. i have to get it out <laughs> you know uh that is laugh out loud funny because we have a laborious job just like everybody has a laborious job there's a slog you have to get through there's a lot you, you know you have to overcome procrastination you have to overcome hard work you know um, you have to just muddle through all that to get to the final product. It's not just this moment, you know, and then it flows out of your fingertips. So that's a bunch of bull that never existed, um, number one. And the other thing is, I guess my own personal pet peeve is if you take any of the um, stereotypes of artists, very often just take any five of them, mash them together. And that's what's out there on the television, you know, on the screen. So um, whether they're so intense that they can't even talk to people while they're working or, you know, they have their hair all messed up or what, just, just name it, you know? Um, those are the things that just make us laugh. You know, we, we labor like just about, you know, I don't look that different really from an accountant when I'm working, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sitting at a desk, you know, doing my drawings, you know, except and, you have paint and charcoal all over you. Well, that, that was so big that I ended up pretty, I had spots all over me of charcoal. <laughs> um, but yeah, you get a little dirtier, but it depends on the medium you're using. Of course. Um, okay, so which came first? Before we get into, you know, the, the full on forensic side, um, did the Institute for Forensic Arts at Edinburgh University come first? Or did that grow out of um, your experiences with the pizza bomber case and, and, and things like this once once that all started to take off? What? Uh you know, there is no clear answer to that, but I can say that the idea for the Institute of Forensic Sciences was kicking around for a while, and I just kept jumping on it and jumping. Every time there was an email thread, I just kept saying, this should be a thing. This should be a thing. This should be a thing. And I couldn't really lead it because I'm in the art department. You know, it should have been somebody in one of the more forensically oriented departments who led it. Um but at a certain point, I know among other people, I was not the only one, um, but among other people, I started to say, guys, we have really amazing people at this campus. You know, besides me having worked on the pizza bomber case and then eventually the head case, I can't remember if we were an institute by that exact point yet. 
but the, the severed head case, the, the pizza bomber case, we have Lenore Barbian and the anthropology, our amazing anthropology mm-hmm. department with Stacy and, and Lenore. Lenore worked on the 9-11 site in Shanksville. She was literally finding human remains or identifying, helping to identify human remains from the airplane that went down in the fields in Shanksville. Mm-hmm. What on earth are we not putting all these heads together to create an institute to be able to help local law enforcement? Can I jump in really quick here? I think because for, for Mike and I, because you and John are both employees at Edinburgh, and you have you have this knowledge about a lot that Mike and I don't really. So um, can you back up a little bit about the Institute for Forensic Science? Because you just mentioned a couple things that really piqued my interest. We, of course, are from Erie. We know what the pizza bomber case is. Um, But you mentioned a severed head. Uh, Very interested about that. And of course, 9-11. So can you talk about what Edinburgh has to do with the pizza bomber case and also what the severed case head cases and the connection to uh, 9-11? So can you just back up, fill us all in on what you're talking about? Thank you very much. <laughs> Will do. John, I'm blaming you for that. That's my fault. I just, I was just on a roll. I was on a roll. So every university and college uh, is asked to put together a list of faculty expertise, essentially so that the media, when they contact the university, can have a, they can have a quick reference for who's good at international politics, who's good at criminal justice, who's good at whatever. So at a certain point, um, the, the pizza bomber, which is a very, very famous case locally, and I think even beyond locally now because of a couple of shows that were featuring that case, what ended up happening was they determined that because it was in the federal courthouse, that they decided they were not going to go with a, a live camera. And so very suddenly they needed somebody to draw the trial. So they called up Edinburgh, who obviously we have a very well-known reputation for art. Um, and somehow through the pipeline in Edinburgh, I guess through that list, um, they found me and said, can you stop what you're doing and go up to this trial? So that's what happened. I, I got a dispensation to go up to the trial for four days or so, whatever it lasted, and to just draw up there. And uh, I became the court artist for the Marjorie Deal Armstrong trial. That was one of, of several trials that was considered the big one, though. And um, and that was, a, that was I, I'm just excellent. I, I, I happen to be very good at live drawing. So it's not like I'm a court artist, but I was very good at live drawing. So I, I just did this thing. They, they I think they aired on Jet TV and, um, you know, they got a lot of play because of the uh, notoriety of the case. So that was happening. And um, again, very, very slowly, because that's how things happen in many universities. Very slowly, there was talk about a forensics institute. And I was very on board with that. And I wanted to help and have some kind of a peripheral role in it. So again, I don't remember the timeline after this fact. But eventually, you know, I'm friendly with, because I had interviewed him for um, a research project. I'm friendly with the the coroner of Erie County, and his name is Lyle Cook. And at a certain point, I get an email from Lyle, and it says, uh, I think these people are looking for you. And I go back through the email thread, and it's all these people down in the Pittsburgh area, police and sheriffs and FBI and the coroners down there. They're all freaking out because, freaking out is probably too strong of a word, but they were concerned that they had a human head that had been found, an embalmed human head. And it was in Cranberry Township in a small town called Economy. Um, So just a couple of miles from that sort of Cranberry Mall shopping area. Wow. They found an embalmed human head. And although she was highly recognizable, 
they you can't put an embalmed human head on the news. They had no idea who this person was. So they had an ID problem. And that's when Lyle said, you know, I think I know somebody who can help you guys. And that's when he forwarded the whole thread to me. So I, I said, well, I can do a drawing if that's what you're looking for to the police chief down in economy. And immediately everything changed and shifted. So they we got on the phone. They said, when can we bring you the head? And I said, no, 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 you don't have to bring it. <laughs> you. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what, that's what ended up happening. Um, so I got to uh, uh, take a look at this head and it, you know, I ended up being a little more involved in the case than an artist normally would. And it's for the simple reason that I'm an anatomy professor as well, because as soon as I saw the head, I realized they, they had been talking about dismemberment. They were talking about grave robbing. They were talking about serial killers and and I was looking at this head and I knew for, a f- I just knew for a fact that it was not any of those things and that it had been anatomically dissected. So we're looking at a whole different thing. And I told them that um, uh-huh. I ended up putting a picture. I, he said, how quickly can you finish the picture? I said, I'm going to go home now. I've taken all my measurements. I've taken all my photographs. I'm going to go home now and I'm going to um, do it within 24 hours. So within 24 hours, they received it. They put it out on the news. I did make the offer because it's a very, very small police department. I think there's maybe 10 guys guys that work there. So I knew that if they needed more help, um, they probably didn't have a ton of budget for it. So I offered that if, if the need arose, if they didn't get an ID very quickly, that I would do a, a three-dimensional one for them too. So sure enough, a lot of leads came in, none of them panned out, and they came back and said, could you do a, a three-dimensional one? Mm-hmm. And, and there is a reason to do that too, because sometimes people are more recognizable from a side view. They just have a distinctive profile or some, some reason like that. Um, so I went ahead and did that, and um, the case proceeded, and uh, it's gotten a, a, a lot of attention, both from Reuters, who did uh, a really tremendous coverage of that case and every and all the implications of that case because mm-hmm. my particular interest in that case was actually in the body trade which as an anatomy professor I'm very aware that there is uh, a, a gray market in body parts in this country and it's vast it's a multi-billion dollar industry and it's been Whoa. something that i would love to do something about and um I've, I've even had a conversation with our provost who back in uh other times you know said maybe we can find a way for you to work on the legislation for this because that's what i wanted to do i wanted to change the laws about the body trade um and it turned Mi- out yeah my mike's time out time out <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. let's well, not just like <laughs> Woo! wait what exactly do you mean that like when you say there's a you know there's some gray material there and stuff like that what exactly are you pertaining to what a gray area in the in the body trade yes well um everyone is aware of organ donation for example which is completely regulated absolutely a a a win-win it's a good thing everyone should do it then there's this other kind of donation which is you know i'm donating my body to science when you donate your body to science it sounds as worthy, and in many cases is as worthy as organ donation, but the problem is that no one's asking questions after the fact. And so there's an awful lot of just, at worst, actual crimes taking place. People's loved ones can go into the crematorium missing multiple parts. People's loved ones can go cannot go into the crematorium and they can have fake ashes returned to them. This is happening in the United States. So where are those parts going? They're going to... Um, well, you really need to look at the Reuters thing because there's it's quite literally two years of, of investigative journalism, <laughs> but I'll try to sum it up in a few sentences here. Um, there are people that are literally making money hand over fist 
strip mining human bodies of everything that's usable in them. And it's happening in the United States. It's happening now. And it's a multi-billion dollar industry that literally not only is happening in this country, we are shipping tonnage in cargo containers across the ocean of our loved ones, body parts to other nations. So all of this is documented as, as much as we can, meaning there's investigative journalists on the case, but no politician seems to be wanting to touch it with a 10 foot pole. I'm not a politician. So I'm feeling like, you know what? No one's going to touch this. I'm just, did you know, did you know, Mike, that you can write your own legislation as an American citizen? You just have to have somebody in Congress sponsor it for you. I so did, I was, yes. that's where I was going to go. But anyway, you had a question. Uh, well, I do have wow. a question. So this is kind of interesting and not to sort of just toss it into something. And I'm not even sure if these are linked. And that's why I'm going to ask you the question. Uh, we're going to go a little bit with the current times. And we know that right now there is a, a drug that they are looking at or of sorts for COVID called Regeneron. We won't talk about who used it. Uh, We're not trying to go political, but I want to sort of stay on on the theme here because one of the ways that they have figured out how this has worked is because of stem cell research. And would there be some correlation between what you're discussing with the black market with bodies and Regeneron? Generally, yes. Generally, yes. Specifically, I can't say because I don't know. I just don't know um, about the lineage of that. You know, I mean, they already know. Let me tell you that they track that stuff. And if you didn't already know, the fetus that provided the cells that provided that 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 led to the development of that med- medication was a fetus that was aborted in 1972. They know which person this, which fetus this came from. So this stuff is tracked. But yeah, the, no politicians wow. are going to talk about it. Even the medical community doesn't really want to talk about it, even though they use it for because it's just such an icky topic that no one wants to talk about it. Right. So I have no problems with these things. For one thing, I'm not squeamish. For another thing, I'm not not fearful and don't have any stake in it. Like I don't need to, you know, I don't need to get reelected to office. So who wants to talk about the death trade? You know, do you think the local folks in the Congress want to do that? Never. So they're, they're happy to ignore it. And they're partially happy to ignore it because some good actually comes out of this industry. So for example, you have, let's just say you have children, you buy them, you go to the, you go to the store and you buy them a bicycle helmet. That bicycle helmet has a safety rating that came from being tested with a human head, okay? So no one wants to talk about that, though. My issue is the dignity of the human. So I feel like we should fess up to, I should, I feel like we should be honest about what we're doing with this stuff. I personally would still donate my body. You know, if you want to use me in landmine experiments, whatever, I mean, my kids might object, but I don't object because I'm you know, toast at that point. So what do I care? But a lot of people would. I object to the, um, I guess it's false, you know, it's, it's, let's call it the filtration of truth. Yeah, let's call it the filtration of truth. That's exactly right. You know, it's like the sin of omission or something, you know, they're just not telling you what actually happens. But the problem with that is that some good things happen, but other things aren't so hot. And you know, you don't want you don't want your grandpa's cells to be used in somebody else's penile enlargement surgery, maybe, you know, I guess not. But that's happening. That's happening. So, you know, there's things like, okay, they're testing helmets, they're testing, you know, the kind of damage that landmines can produce with whole bodies, frankly, so that they can help more and more veterans get, um, you know, the appropriate treatment afterwards. That makes sense, but they're still lying about that. But they're also lying about, you know, essentially um, plastic surgeries that are also being used with your, um, 
you know, grandma and grandpa's cells. So it's really, really problematic. And I cannot emphasize enough. I will send John the link after this to the full Reuters thing because you guys will get it. Yes, yeah. please, please, actually. We will share it in the show notes as well. Okay, that sounds good. Because listen, they, they got wind of this whole case and, and, and Reuters contacted me and said, like, what's your whole angle here? And I said, my whole angle is that this severed head, you know, I want to find out who she is, but she's not the big story here. The big story is the body trade that led to this, you know, anatomically dissected head leading, you know, being off a dirt road in Economy uh, Borough. I said, that, you know, that's the problem. So I said, that's the thing that's really near and dear to my heart. And then they went and and took that and ran with it. And they, they did the sting. I was supposed to do a sting with the the, um, Pittsburgh FBI and the sheriff's office down there and the DA's office. At the end of a year, we hadn't gotten anywhere with this severed head case. So they said, all right, you're so sure about these cuts. You know, how can we prove it? And then somebody else said, well, why don't we just order some heads? And, you know, I said, they said, can you do that? And I said, sure, I can. I'm an anatomy professor. So you want me to order heads? You got to pay for them. But yeah, let's do it. So we were we were going to do it and we were going to do it, um, uh, I guess, no, for, we were starting... We were starting with a local medical school that uh, we were going to just examine some of the cuts that happened there first, and then we were going to order afterwards, after that point. But right around that time is when um, Blake Morrison, who is the Reuters um, investigative journalist, he contacted me and he said, you know what, we'll do that sting for you. It'll be on our dime. We're going to take it and we're going to turn it into a part of the story. And that's exactly what he did. And you know what he did? He ordered a head and then he found out who that head was and he traced it right on back. It was absolutely fascinating. So, and it'll break your heart. So you guys need to read this. That's your bedtime reading tonight. Oh my God, this is fascinating. There's like a world, like a whole world that none of us, none of us know. Can I just tell you guys? You are, we are, we are all straight, straight in the perfect triangle of it too, because we have research institutions, medical research institutions, particularly in Cleveland and Pittsburgh, but also in Buffalo. And, you know, we have brain trauma research going on at Ohio State University. They all use human body parts. That's why that had, you know, potentially was down there is because there's a lot of like rusty vans moving parts all over the place around here. We're just meat. Did they ever do a further like uh, excavation of the area uh, where they found the head? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. No, they did the full. They did the full. You know, you have to secure the site, and then they 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 do the full thing. And they did. There are no other parts, and um, it was just a head that went missing. It bounced out of a van or was placed there <laughs> oh by <God>. someone. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was Jesus. pretty dramatic stuff for... Well, then it wasn't a van. It was a pickup truck. <laughs> well, <laughs> let me, let me tell you a lot of the, a lot of the guys who are transporting this stuff are like literally right off the meth train. You know what I mean? They're, you know, they're not, they could have literally had holes in their van, you know, who the heck knows how it got Oh my there. God. <laughs> anyway. This is... Dead. Wow. How long ago was this? Was this uh, head? He was found in December of 2014. And then a year later, when we had this meeting where we said, we said, where are we? Nowhere. We got to do a sting. That was December of 15. And it was right after her funeral. We actually held a funeral for her because we never found any other parts. Wow. A year had gone by and she was in rough shape, very rough shape at that point. And she had been tested enough. Like there was no more we were going to get out of her. So we decided to, um, to have a funeral for her. And we did. I got to be a pallbearer for her wow uh which was an honor and um you know where's the case we're still working on the case so since oh, wow jeez <laughs> i didn't know about this story i was gonna just wow. <laughs> <laughs> i knew that like 
this this stuff has kind of taken you to cases around the world right now at this point, Michelle? Like, yeah, I've, I've done a couple, not not much internationally. I don't do a ton of casework because this is my day job. I teach this well, stuff, sure. right? But um, but I I yeah. I, but you're getting noticed. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember you were you were talking to like some TV people a little while ago and about un unsolved mysteries. Those mm -hmm. people, yeah. Well, Reuters was the first big thing, and I got tons of attention after that. And and I had worked a case, two cases in Spain. It's just word of mouth because I don't really care. Like if they find me, great, but I don't. I'm not trolling for business, you know? So the Reuters thing was huge. And then I, you know, I would get various articles and this and that based off of that. And then the last thing that just happened was um, the producers of uh, Unsolved Mysteries contacted me. The producer of Unsolved Mysteries said, well, because of it's COVID times uh, and we're, you know, pr production has basically stopped. We're going to use this for a... Um, a podcast. And I said, okay, you know, so the longer she talked to me, though, we talked for a couple of hours, two or three hours. And then at the end of that, she was so animated. And then later that night, I got an email, she said, I went right to Netflix. And I said, this is not a podcast. This is, a, you know, so they said they, they have me apparently tentatively penciled in for the next season, because I guess it's a reboot, wow. a, a Netflix reboot. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so I'm supposed to be maybe my this story, this story, not me, you know, uh, is supposed to be on in the next season. I just remember it from back in the day, like back in the 90s. I haven't watched uh, the Netflix. Is anybody on here? I, yes. Yeah. Yes, we, we have. I've watched it. Some of them, some of them were good. Uh, one of them was very much like the 90s one where there are people that are kind of like a little bit loco talking about beings coming from above and yeah i mean yeah you know i was one of those I, people in the 90s yeah little well i, I mean if you can watch them you can watch it okay michelle go go on to amazon prime look up some unsolved mysteries all right you'll all right. you'll find it to be a little bit cheesy that's okay though okay give it watch a couple of those and uh you know some of them were like unsolved unsolved mysteries crimes and and then they would follow up and say hey tips from this show led to the arrest of this person yeah. and right. then some of them were about ufos yeah you know <laughs> uh you know not the arrest like of ufos they didn't well, arrest, the arrest any of UFOs. <laughs> well the, net, the, the netflix show the reboot on netflix yeah. has actually and i they actually i think had a success in one or two of their cases okay. uh, and, and new and new evidence came in and uh Mm -hmm. And that, then pretty much when that happened, Netflix and uh, you know the Bur bureau and everything like they they're yeah. getting the full consent to try to keep on doing this. The yeah. reboot is really well done, and of course, true crime is like huge now. It's huge. It's been for and so long. I keep figuring that it's going to be over soon, but <laughs> it's I don't not know. over. I It'll never. I get over. enough, Michelle. They cannot. Yeah, get we enough. can't get enough. We can't get enough. <laughs> well, <laughs> tell the them Facebook the film office. That's right. When yeah. they call them out. I will. I, I will. I am not a true crime fan. I will say that they did a really good job on the okay. or something. I don't watch all of them. I don't love the uh, sort of the voyeuristic yeah. thing of the you know true crime crowd. But uh, yeah. Yeah. it's weird. I love it's weird it. To, I, it's a weird 
it's a weird crime is entertainment is uh, i I know that's how i feel but (laughs) yeah i I think it's overstepped some weird moral i did say a couple i did say one thing to her which i meant very seriously which is that if it's going to be really like prurient you know i don't want that i take this signal you know the whole the whole reason i do this is that so people can get identified and they can get a decent you know it's all about again the dignity of the person so Mm -hmm. if they're going to ask me to do things that are you know weird um mm-hmm. or say things that are edgy you know i'm not gonna mm-hmm. do that she was okay with that so that's okay. she passed mm-hmm. a kind of a smell test you know the, yeah. the new ones don't do the new one like i did watch a few of the it's not as sensationalized it feels like yeah. there's a um there is a more earnest intention to them mm-hmm. mm. i think that a lot of true crime now is unsolved stories that i think they try to I think a lot of um, people who want to try to solve crime themselves, like yeah. Oh, yeah. amateur sleuths, oh, they love there's stories so many of them. and they want to try, I mean, they could be Looney Tunes, but they want to try to solve crime. And so they think they're helping by having these online forums and trying to solve mysteries and stuff like that. And the perfect, um, the, the perfect example of this is the I'll Be Gone in the Dark story on, um, it's on HBO Max right now. Oh, yeah. The story of Michelle... Uh, what's her last name, Mike? I, don't I can't. Remember her last she name. was married. She was married to Patton Oswald, and she basically, you know, she could not give up this this hunt for the Golden State Killer, oh. and she she basically she almost solved the case, and then she <laughs> died, and mm-hmm. then they solved the murder. But she was obsessed with trying to solve this murder, and she, you know, and a lot of the people out there are trying to solve unsolved mysteries. <laughs> they, 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 she's forgetting they solved the murder or solved who who was the killer based off of the information that she found oh they did. yeah she okay. yeah there, she basically a, yeah yeah she, it's an she incredible case, story yeah. so i think that the true crime obsession yes some of it is like people who are obsessed with the stories but the real i think that the real amazing thing is there's all this evidence and there's all these cold cases and they spread out this evidence and the and there's all these people out there who try to solve cases and who try to bring justice to unsolved you know victims out there when when kind of like what you're saying this head that no one knows who who it is yeah yeah well this head when i put out the sculpture images of it photoshopped with totally different hairdos and outfits on started appearing my sculpture totally photoshopped and it was all these people People trying to say she could have looked like this, she could have looked like that. Here's her oh with the and I'm like, mm-hmm. God, you yeah. have way too much time on your hands. But anyway, yes, yeah, uh, yeah. There are people out there that want to do that. Well, yeah. that, that explains why I'm getting calls, but it's okay. Whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't. I'm happy to help uh, anybody who has yeah. the right interest. You know, and I know they're selling a show and all that. She did. Mm-hmm. She did say that the only thing she said they were so hot on this that the only thing that would stop it is if the case got solved (laughs) between now and when we start filming or whatever. So, so Mm -hmm. I think it's going to happen. There have been, you know, that is a possibility actually, you know, it could be solved by then because there's some kind of a weird DNA thing that's happening right now. And if that solves it, then it's over. But anyway, my point (laughs) is, Things are happening. Well, Michelle, I'll I'll just wrap up in and yeah. saying that it's good that um, people are looking for experts in these areas and less of the hive mind of uh, social media to <laughs> to solve these serious situations. Jeez. Okay. 
the little bit of the hive mind that I have seen is it's just all over the place. There are good people that obviously can produce some interesting stuff. My question to them is why don't they just go into the biz, but whatever. And then there are other people who are just throwing spaghetti at the wall, you know, and seeing what sticks. So um, we need less of that. That's for sure. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I've learned a lot. Thanks so much Me for too. your time, Michelle. <laughs> Very Thanks, <informative>. Michelle. <laughs> You're very welcome. Have happy a great Halloween. rest of your night. Yeah, happy <laughs> Halloween. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Michelle. Nice to see you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> This week was my pick. I really didn't know what to expect, except Mike just said, hey, how about the skull, Erica? And I said, sounds like a great idea. The premise sounded awesome. I like the idea of an older movie. I'm pretty happy with the choice, guys. I mean, didn't really know what to expect going into it. 1965 seemed like a good old year for uh, for an old movie. So just to remind everyone, I know you just watched it, but uh, a collector, Christopher a wealthy, Maitland. A wealthy collector. Yes, a wealthy collector comes into the possession of the skull of the Marquis de Sade, which was robbed from its grave by um, French. a Frenchman. Pierre. Um, Pierre, who... Uh, wax his uh, skull skull off his corpse out of his grave and ends up drowning for his uh, for his crime and of course the skull is possessed by an evil spirit and it ends up in the hands of Marco and he's a little oddity dealer um, Marco ends up with this this skull who's who's possessed by Marquis de Sade's evil spirit. And of course, Christopher ends up with it. One of the things, I'll just start with one of the things I loved about this movie, which is Christopher Lee, who plays like the Sir, right? Sir Matthew Phillips. Obviously, Christopher, you know, our pipe smoking, wealthy, you know, <laughs> antique owning, I don't even know what he is. Is he a professor? of some kind just rich we don't dudes. know he's just a rich guy <laughs> that collects things he likes to collect you know evil looking you know masks and totems and books he has this you know lounge full of stuff his study and he goes obviously he goes to many um auctions to collect his and he's sitting there across from sir matthew phillips aka christopher lee and and Christopher Lee, you know, Sir Matthew, he looks like he's just in this trance. He's like possessed and he's bidding higher and higher for these little statues of evil, you know, devilish creatures. Mm -hmm. And he he's bidding higher and higher against Christopher and um, and he ends up, you know, outbidding him. And he gets home and he's like, I, I lost out on these statues. But he ends up getting this skull from the evil little Marco who is rubbing his nose the whole time. And I'm asking Mike, what is he doing? He's a cokehead. And Mike goes, that's snuff. Yeah, he's snuffing. He's, got, he's snuffing. And that's what they called cokeheads back in the day. The guys who like the snuff. Look like Anthony Hopkins, like uh, brother or something. He has a little Anthony Hopkins in him, in my, in my opinion. I was like, is, is that, that a right? young Anthony Hopkins? It's not Anthony Hopkins. It's not, it's not Anthony Hopkins. But yeah, his nose was going like crazy. That guy could not stop with the snuff. He was going on with the snuff. Yeah. Well, somehow, I can't remember exactly how Marco ended up with it, but he stole it. Well, they never... Uh, they, the they don't, yeah, they, they don't they, say. Right. He's a real Sir shady Matthew, character. He's shady. And Sir Matthew he's a, Phillips ends he's up... He's a middleman. 
Marco's a middleman. That's, That's right. how I fit. You Give know, me the he's cash, man. Give me the cash. I need. He's the cash. he's supplying for, he's supplying the means for these guys. And by the way, I think it's actually they toss it in there slightly. They're not just rich. Uh, they are rich, but I yeah. think that they are uh, it like they're actually professors of like you know the necromantic, yeah, the, the dark, occult, the dark, the dark arts. arts. Yeah, okay. okay. I, I okay. think that. Yeah, and I think they're that teachers there's... at Hogwarts. They're professors at Hogwarts. Okay, <laughs> it's the off season. They're it's all summertime. <laughs> they're they're home for the summer. They're professors at Hogwarts, and they're home for the summer. So what you need to know, though, is that Sir Matthew Phillips, he has these four statues that he's kind of in a trance, and he is purchased and he's taken home yeah and he and doesn't you, know why he bought them he was just like moved to buy them like beyond he was his moved control, to right? buy them yes that's correct and then you have marco with this skull and then you have christopher maitland and he's gone home and he has nothing yet but marco wants him to buy this skull and at Mar first he doesn't buy it right. but then he ends up buying it marco does a great tactic of selling him the uh what does he say it's made out of flesh this book that's the, book. the story of like oh yeah he sells he, him the book yeah. he prefaces he the whole i mean he's got a great sales game going right, right there sell him the book he's, of flesh and uh, yeah Okay, what I think is really interesting is that he sells him the Marquis de Sade's book first, but he completely leaves out the fact that that book is full of like his like sexual sadism. Like it is all about his like violent sex life. He yeah. just completely leaves all of that out. He's like, here is his black magic book like no 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 that is how he violently sexually accosted men women and children <laughs> it's 1965 there's still censor or, you know censors going i know on. i know but it's hilarious how there is absolutely no mention of sex whatsoever in this movie meanwhile that is pretty much all that it was about and it had nothing to do with like black magic at all but okay the marquis de sade i just love how they picked the marquis de sade as the evil spirit like it could have been anybody and they picked the sexual sadist but, okay. Well, it was it's based off of a a, a story originally, like a, it, like a yeah, book. It was a short story and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. The main character is play, played by Peter Cushing, I want to say, and yes. uh, the famous to uh, sci-fi and fantasy fans for you got it. Yes, yes. And uh, so, okay. and it was sort of a trip to see him get a main role because it's like my whole childhood. I don't think I've ever seen him in anything else, but I'm sure that he's one of these, you know, revered uh, British actors, stuff like that, who uh, didn't jump upon till much later. Mm -hmm. Yes, quite stuffy. I mean, I'm as good I'm as the stuffy British guy. <laughs> right. Sorry, I had John. the no, no, no worries. Just as I was watching, I was like, oh, I, I'm sure none of this was any of the filmmakers or writers' thoughts, but I just had some silly thoughts of like, oh, a cautionary tale against impulse buying. <laughs> 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 and then I was like, and then I'm like, why do wealthy people just want to own shit that they shouldn't own? Like, you know, I have money. I'm not doing anything with this money. I'm just going to buy a bunch of weird shit that no one should actually own. Like, kind of calling like back what, Mich right, like what Michelle was talking about with like this whole gray market of like body parts and stuff. It's like people just want to buy shit that they shouldn't have, that they have no right. reason to have just to break the rules. That's right. Because I'm rich. 
I should just really own this skull. I should just put it in a glass case right. so I can tell people this is the skull of the Marquis de Sade. It's like whatever happened to rest it. whatever happened to rest in peace. Come on, guys. <laughs> the Marquis, I was looking at the Marquis de Sade's head did actually go missing. Oh. This is a real thing. Uh, now, it wasn't taken from the details and the facts are a little bit twisted. Uh, wasn't, uh, he wasn't buried, but he uh, was taken away to an insane asylum. And uh, when he passed away, when they to get his when they were going to eventually bury him they pulled his body and they were gonna off the slab and his head was missing wow so they i think that they think that somebody probably from the institution uh took it so speaking Keepsake. of him being in an institution does everybody remember the movie quill oh yeah yeah, uh-huh. yeah. jeffrey right yeah <laughs> yep. yes i remember watching that one time and finding it fascinating do yeah, you recall sex in it right it had some sex in it he would by the end he would was in a pit and writing his sexual fantasies in his own shit on the walls of the pit because he just was so full of his stories and lust and passion that he he had to write he just had to write yeah and somebody had to write it down for him so i wasn't he like writing it and then he was speaking it aloud and somebody had to write it for him or wow. i don't know he had to write he was like alexander hamilton he just couldn't stop writing they should have had the that flesh book with pages that were just like um you know the the uh, they should have taken the plaster or whatever off of those walls and it should have just been written in his own shit the pages should have just been <laughs> His shit pages. <laughs> shit pages. <laughs> well, and John, you'll I, I think you'll appreciate this. And I t- sent this to Erica off like before we started. But yeah. we have been late of late been watching a bunch of not less recognizable horror films. And uh, uh, the three that I'll mention are, and I mentioned them last week, are Robert Altman's Images, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Now You See with Donald Sutherland and Julie uh-huh. Christie. No, and, Don't Look Now. Or Don't yeah, Look don't, Now. Don't yeah, look, yeah. Sorry, Don't Look Now. And this one. And there's something that I'm coming to notice with a lot of these lesser known horror films is there's always like a pretty cool moment. And in this film, there is, uh, he starts uh, to have, the main character starts to have some hallucinations. And there is the Russian roulette scene. Oh, and, yeah. And, and I kind of. interesting. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's also like everybody. You know, when you say Russian roulette and you immediately think the deer hunter. Mm-hmm. And then if it's like, uh, don't look now has the scene where the murderer it has her back to the camera and like sort of echoes uh, Blair, Blair, Witch Witch, Project. Blair Witch Project. And uh-huh. then images with the split personality has a like kind of a touch of Fight Club. And it's, it feels like mm-hmm. these sort of lesser known, maybe not as prestigious horror films had a great idea and people like over time people stole, yeah, of course. Kind of a cherry pick these things. It's yeah. Just like, it's just like, oh shit. And not stole. We call it homage, but it's right. like, but I mean like Tarantino and everybody, they you know, they readily admit they're they're just stealing stealing the best pieces from those who came before and repackaging mm-hmm. them right mm-hmm. yeah it's, that is it, not a quote of quentin tarantino but <laughs> <laughs> they, they, that's what we all do right i mean yeah it's it's packaging stuff in new and interesting ways yeah i, I mean when i okay so when i first started watching like i love the texture the photography i love the lighting like i'm not a fan of like 50s hollywood lighting but this light like it's the color palette and everything like it 
Yeah, it's we great. Should, we should mention the director, Freddie Francis, who was a long time, very celebrated cinematographer, uh, has a couple of Oscars under his uh, uh, under his belt, Oscars and BAFTAs, and he is uh, he is no slouch. Although he goes on to direct a couple of horror films, and he has an interesting quote about it, where he says that he was treated better by the horror genre. Uh, more than he felt he treated the horror genre or the horror genre itself. Uh-huh. He was not a film fan of horror. He yeah, just horror kept, gets a bad bad rap always. He just kept on getting the the, the paychecks from horror. Their their fans are rabid. Yes. <laughs> rabid fans. But when you're to like yeah, the way they treat women is really interesting. Like right off the bat, like Pierre is such a dick to his mistress or whoever that is. You oh know? yeah. Like, you're always happy to see me, and he's like, not tonight. You need to leave. Get out of here. So she just lounges around eating marshmallows, which was really bizarre. (laughs) (laughs) And the first thing I thought when I saw her laying there is like, ooh, marshmallows. (laughs) And I was like, ew, marshmallows. (laughs) (laughs) I love marshmallows. You had me until the marshmallows. Oh, you had me at marshmallows. Yeah, and then the the blonde woman that um I I mean I guess oh my gosh the wife yeah Yeah. she's laying on the couch yes I I believe she Jane Jane yes I believe I just assumed it was everybody's mistreated mistresses is what no that's his wife okay okay so here's the difference between like 1965 and 2020 he leaves well he thinks it's a nightmare right and he. He thinks the co- it's the cops and they take him away and he goes and has that Russian roulette moment and whatever, this hallucination. And then she's asleep on the couch and all of a sudden he wakes up and he's in this study and she wakes up. Oh, dear. Oh, darling. <laughs> and she's asleep and she goes, let me make you a drink. Right. You know, and she's she the one snaps right up. on the sleep. Right. Let me make you a drink, darling. And, <laughs> yeah. and she's the one worried. I'm like, oh, come on. This yeah. would never happen. If no. I was asleep on the couch and Mike came wandering in, I'd be like, where the fuck have you been? Right. Yeah. Fact. Make me that, that has actually happened, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> True story. That has happened. We don't. We don't need to go into when it happened, but it happened. <laughs> well, Mike Maybe was probably in a red room with smoke coming out of the vents, and the walls were squeezing in on him. Okay, and that was a moment too I didn't really get because I didn't see the walls coming in, mm-hmm. but I saw the smoke coming in. I'm like, why are you running toward the smoke? Why aren't you running away from the smoke? Instead, the smoke's coming in. He's going as if you're push going to push the smoke back in. He starts right. going like this. He wastes far too smoke. much time on those events exactly. <laughs> there was nowhere for him to run <laughs> that's right oh yeah, I mean, it's interesting i i think my enthusiasm for it like started off really high mm-hmm. and then like it just slowly kind of i don't know it, it gets like uh really theatrical at parts right yeah, yeah. melodramatic and and then like yeah. his wife sleeps through like the, he's pounding on doors and screaming and the skulls yeah. breaking glass and she's yeah. just She's just sitting there with the cross. She's safe. Jesus has her. And then the genre is kind of twisted, right? Because then all of a sudden, the cross keeps it away from her. Like. And then well, his little ball cross opens on its own, and right, yeah. And then you could, and then the, and then the skull. There was one part 
where you could see the strings carrying the cr- carrying the skull. Not oh, that that took me out of sure. it. It's 1965. I know, but they did a pretty good job. The rest they did. Of the, they did I a like good the job, skull but vision. Like it was really simple, but the skull vision shots. Yes. Were pretty cool. I know? did like that. I did <laughs> like that. But yeah, it got kind of cartoony toward the end. It started feeling like, okay, we're getting to this point. And then the skull becomes like the werewolf because it's like it ate Marco. <laughs> that was an animal bite. And then it it ate Maitland at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, animal bite to the neck again. So it kind of was mixing. Well, it's genre. the... It's the evil spirit, the one statue. I forget exactly which one it was, right. but you see, oh, yeah. you see uh, which one it is, and uh, and it's clearly that is the evil spirit that is possessing the skull and uh, the bite. It's the it, only the... one I can't remember the name of. Yes, Beelzebub and Lucifer and uh, yeah, Lucifer, the... Beelzebub, Leviathan, and then another. It's the uh... one of. It is the evil spirit of murder. Sleepy Smurf. Sleepy Smurf. <laughs> yes. So all in all, it was worth the hour and twenty five. Yeah, it was. It was entertaining for sure. It was entertaining. It was. It was fun. I'm Certainly, say, if this is 1965, that film probably scared the shit out of me. You yeah. know, it, like sure. we, it, that was probably like, what the fuck is going on with the skull, man? <laughs> like, yeah. And that we've just become a little bit more desensitized. True. Yes. And I did find myself at a few points going, I wonder what it would be like if this somebody remade this. I thought of that too. Yeah. Like yeah. what, what uh, I don't think maybe a skull, but maybe some other object. And then I'm sure that's already been done a bunch of times. I'm sure it has too. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, good. I'd say but good hey. pick. I, I wouldn't yeah. have seen the skull otherwise. So thanks. Yes. Me, Which, me uh, neither. What movie would you recommend for next week? <laughs> yeah. Well, Funny you ask, Mike. So this is a couple years old. Mike, I know that you know I was a big fan of the raid in the raid too, as as were yourself, right? I I, 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 I have still yet to see the raid too. I cannot oh, find shit. it anywhere. Oh my god! Yeah, I, I I have to get that one. But I love. I just actually rewatched the raid uh, back in July. Oh, so good. Still yes. holds up. It's amazing. Yeah. So that director Gareth Evans. I didn't know that he made another film, um, and it showed up on Netflix. It's called Apostle. So this week's film is Apostle, and this is early 1900s. You have a uh, drifter played by Dan Stevens, who's a great actor. Um, of Legion. Of Legion. Downton Abbey. Abbey. He plays the brother who's looking for the kidnappers of his sister in early 1900s. And he comes across this religious cult um, out in the middle of nowhere. I believe it's uh, it's on an island, I think. And yeah, it's, it's creepy religious cult stuff. <laughs> So it's never good when you come across. <laughs> when are we going to get the romantic uh, comedy of the cult? You know, like what? What is? Who has ever explored that genre? Nobody. Right. Nobody has done it. 
good. It's point. always bad news when you hit the cults. Well, would little hours count as they're not they're nuns, but that, they're nuns. Yeah, that's yeah. not really. That's maybe nah. a cult. But yeah. yeah. Anyways, <laughs> so this week's is Apostle. It's on Netflix. It is. It's definitely uh, R-rated. Erica, you'll have to cover your eyes a couple times, probably probably a few times. Uh, Michael Sheen's in it. He plays the leader of the religious cult, Dan Stevens, looking for his sister. Oh, this is a horror movie? Yes. Yarp. Oh, I remember when this came out. I am excited. Thank you to our guest, Michelle Vitale of Edinburgh University. Our guest next week will be musician and owner of Tony Gray Bass Academy, Tony Gray. Make sure you follow the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office on social media. You'll find all the tags and links in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, this was Film Grain.